What is up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here for episode 236 of the MMA Reigns podcast. Sean Hume is here with me as well. We got a lot to talk about today. This is a pretty big show for us, pretty big card coming up this weekend. But before we start, as always, thank you for taking the time to check us out. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe anywhere you find MMA Ratings content, whether it be over at MMARatings.com or .net. You can always see us on social media, MMA Ratings Net, on both Instagram and Twitter. Myself, I'm at Garcia underscore sports. Shawan's at Black Jordan Green. And this podcast, you can check us out on YouTube at MMA Ratings and on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. Uh, before we talk about today's show and um, basically start off with USC 273, Sean, how you doing there, sir? Can't complain. I, I just got done uh, doing a training session for this. These elementary kids they are going to be in some kind of tournament. It's like these Indian kids are going to be in this tournament. And it's a big tournament for people from Texas and Oklahoma and a couple of states. And they, they every two years, they pick a state and they hold like, you know, different sporting events. And I'm helping train some kids for a basketball one. So... It's uh, interesting because only like really two of them can really play. <laughs> so I've got to pick the team and then I've got to train the team. I was hoping that I would just have to train them. But now I'm in charge of also picking the team, which is just another highlight of my day. Good stuff there, sir. Always busy, always staying busy. And um, talking about being busy, this weekend is a very busy weekend for combat sports. I didn't even realize that so much boxing was going on, but there's at least six or seven fights that could stand on their own as a Saturday kind of feature bout. But there's six big fights this weekend alongside UFC 273, which is also on Saturday. And I think Bellator has a strong card on Friday as well. So we got quite a bit to talk about. We're not going to talk too much about Bellator tonight. We're going to focus on UFC 273. And have, have you ever wondered why Bellator, when they're going to have a strong card, has it the same day the UFC is going to have a strong card? Like when the UFC is having these weak cards or they're off, that's when you should be pouring into it, so you, the whole focus is on you. Like, who, that's a good. I mean, that's a good question because I feel like there have been shows where they have had very strong cards that run before UFC events. Like, I, the first one that popped in, into mind was you remember when Michael Chandler and Eddie Alvarez fought hours before, like maybe an hour before Shogun and Dan Henderson had that um, big rematch, and that was a hell of a night. Of fights, but I feel like they have a lot of good cars on Fridays um, before Saturday, and UFC having a, a pretty strong event. I think it's it's a smart strategy, but you don't hear as much um, about the Bellator cars. Like this week, I know is um, Corey Anderson and um, Yudin Nimkov, and I don't even know what the co-main event is. I know it's a big one though. Let me look. Yeah. It, it just it's just like why not just do it on a weekend where you have the show to yourself or you're com- competing against a weak card like you're you're splitting the focus and most and you don't have the UFC name brand recognition. Oh, I see, I totally, like and this is and then you have a good point there because this weekend's card is AJ McKee versus Patricio Freire, probably their two biggest stars fighting on Friday, and then yeah, Nadeem Nekoff and Corey Anderson is the co-main event. Aaron Pico is fighting before that. Um, so, I mean, this is a, you know, th- at least those three fights are, are pretty strong and worth watching as well. But uh, I haven't heard too much about this, uh, even from a promotion standpoint, outside of some of the regular outlets. Exactly. Back when they used to release albums, Jay-Z didn't release the same time as DMX because they knew they were going to split the focus. You want, you want 
all the earnings for yourself. True. It, it seems like bad business, but that's not that's not here nor there. Just a question. He, I, he I did release on 9/11 though, so that is true. He did have that one bad drop day. But let's start with UFC 273, where we have two big fights here at the top of the card, but a very strong card throughout as well too. Like there's a lot to really talk about here, and we're going to start off with um, Alexander Volkanovski defending the featherweight title against Chan Sung Jung. Now, and I understand why Volkanovski is such a wide favorite in this fight. He has a very sound toolkit um, across the across the spectrum. He might be perhaps the most well-rounded champion in um, the UFC right now. Maybe him, Valentina uh, Shevchenko might be a close second, but he is very sound across the board. And he's fighting someone in Chan Sung Jung who kind of got his uh, presence in MMA when he was way, way reckless. And he was fighting basically to go out there and put on a show. He went away for a little while to um, do the mandatory Korean military service, came back, and he's and he's been a much better fighter since his return. Um, first off, I want to ask you, Sean, how do you see this fight going now? Let's talk about that. I have a couple of questions about what uh, Chan may be able to do to get a victory here. Um, I would assume that in the fight, what's going to happen is, is you're going to have a typical Volkanovski fight. He's going to use volume. He's going to use activity. He's going to use his phys- physicality to set a tone and ultimately wear down his opponent. Um, Volkanovski is very technical. He's very strategical. But the nature of his style is to consistently make you work and to make you uncomfortable and not allow you to get to certain positions you want to or get into certain stances where your defense is very good or your offense is very good. He tries to catch you in the in-between. His team does a lot of studying to figure out where is this person's, you know, three to five spots they're most dangerous in. And my thing is to keep transferring them or forcing them back and forth between those spots. I'm not ever letting him rest to get into position. Force me into up against the cage. Yes. I was going to say you froze your back. Position. If you watch him training, once he's bar, he's putting that volume on you, so you can't feel comfortable with your shots. He's trying to deny you takedowns because he doesn't want you to secure a position where you feel comfortable and you can rest. He wants you constantly shifting positions so that you're burning the energy, not just physically but mentally, because you can't get to or you can't stay in the spots you're most effective in. And I, I assume that's what he's going to do against Chan Sung Jung, who's a more defensively responsible fighter, who's a little bit more disciplined. But ultimately, he has had a lot of mileage on him. And when he's been facing opponents who, who are physically superior, superior or comparable to him as far as length and size and athleticism, he hasn't fared nearly as well. His loss to Brian Ortega was fairly one-sided, a guy who could match him physically. His loss to Yair Rodriguez was another guy who was physically comparable to him or better, better athlete than him against other, other lesser opponents. He was able to, to bully them to take take over control the pace of the fight. I don't know that he's going to be able to do that against Volkanovski. Now I don't know if Volkanovski is a devastating enough fighter to finish him. But then again, I don't know that, that the Korean zombie has enough of a chin to stand up under five rounds of punishment and five rounds of, of race of pace pushing. So I want to talk about that because there's a couple of different things about um, Chan that I want to kind of think about here. Do you think he throws caution to the wind here? 
and comes out a little more reckless to maybe throw something different at, at Volkanovski that he may not be expecting to see. Because I think from a technique standpoint, technique, 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 position to position, I think Volkanovski is is better, if not just as good as um, Chan in every spot. The only place Chan may be better than him is in the grappling format. But if we're, if we're, if we're talking strictly um, grappling outside of that, I think Volkanovski has, hasn't beaten in every position. Do you see him being more reckless, at least maybe early in the fight, to try to shake things up a little bit? I, I would do think, we get I, a look of, like, do, like, does the Korean zombie of 2013, 2014 come back? I could see him being more aggressive, looking to really put something on Volkanovski early because you don't want Volkanovski asserting his, his, own, his own momentum. You want to interrupt him. You don't want him to start putting shots together pressuring you and forcing you into his pace and forcing you into positions he wants you to be in. The easiest way to stop instead of being reactive is to be proactive and to attack him and put something on him heavily. The problem is Volkanovski has, for the most part, shown to be pretty durable or able to recover when in bad spots, whether it's a submission or getting rocked on the feet. So that aggression comes with a high price because if you don't put him on his heels or you don't hurt him severely, you're going to expose yourself to a takedown. You're going to end up in a clinch where you're forced up against a cage. You're going to basically, because to land that kind of shot, you have to load up and put something on it. If that shot doesn't put him out or doesn't back him up, you know he's going to fire with five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine, ten shots of his own, and he's going to pressure you and put you in a bad position. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think the Korean Zombie can tie up with him or match him in physical strength or pace. He's the bigger hitter. He's probably the better finisher, but it's getting to those finishing spots and being able to build on those finishing spots where the problem is. And if you go out for a quick finish, if you get it, cool. But if you don't, now you're at the mercy of Okanowski. He's put you in an inferior position. Maybe he's taking you down. Maybe he's got you up against the cage. And now you've got to fight tooth and nail just to get the fight back to a neutral site. I can really see that there. I can see that going down. Um, how do you see this fight going? Do you think that it goes all five rounds with Volkanovski being pretty dominant going 50-45, or do you see this being closer? Well, I'm thinking that – I'm thinking Cejudo – because a lot of what Cejudo does when he works with people is he's trying to find minor details or nuanced aspects of their fight game to adjust to kind of allow them to flourish. In the case of – in the case of the Korean zombie, I feel like he wants to take advantage of his power advantage and he wants to take advantage of his jab and have him exploit Volkanovski at distance, probably catch him coming in and catch him on the outside. Hopefully you can catch him enough where he's forced to stay outside and Jung can use his, I think he's probably a little bit better of an athlete and he's a harder hitter. So where you want to keep him where Volkanovski's at range and he's able to get picked off and you're able to make your power the deciding factor in the fight. You don't want it to be a matter of pace. You don't want it to be a matter of physicality because you're not going to win that against. You're not going to win that against Volkanovski. What you want to do is keep him at range and force him to kind of go into a long range, power punching, pot shotting battle because they don't really respect Volkanovski's power. They think Volkanovski's power comes from his volume and him breaking you down, breaking you down through attrition. They don't think he can just one shot somebody. So they can kind of control the pace and control the distance and make sure they're catching him in between shots then they can hold him off from pressing, back him up, and eventually finish him off. Um, that's what I think he wants to do. But Korean Zombie, as fights go on, and, and he's in tough fights, 
in the in his in exchanges tend to get extended. You you notice even in his grappling, he gets a little bit sloppy. He starts getting a little bit desperate, jumping for submissions, hunting for submissions. In exchanges, he might be tight through the first one, two, three, but then when you get to four or five, it gets a little wide. He starts standing in front of you. He stops moving his head. He stops changing levels, and he just starts slugging with you. So what I think Volkanovski's want to do is he wants to jump on him early and force the Korean zombie to have to fight his way out because he doesn't believe the Korean zombie can match his pace, and he believes that if the Korean zombie is firing bombs trying to end the fight, he's going to give up position for a takedown or end up clinched up against the fence where he can kind of drain his energy, drag him down, and then put the pace on him and overwhelm him. For the Korean zombie, he just wants to control the range. He wants to constantly turn Volkanovski so Volkanovski can't get that momentum going, keep him at arm's length, and make it a matter of athleticism and power. Because if he keeps it that fight, I think it's an easy fight for the Korean zombie. But it's a matter of can he keep Volkanovski where he wants to be at, where he needs him to be at. I don't necessarily think he can. Um, he had problems even against Yari Rodriguez. And Yari is a great athlete. He's very durable. But he doesn't have the IQ or the levels let the range of weapons or the level of attack that Volkanovski has. He ha- he struggled with Ortega, and Ortega's a dynamic striker, but he only fights in spots. And Ortega, you know, he he's he's not the he's not the he's he's a guy who's a dynamic finisher, but he doesn't really set up his work very well. And once Ortega hurt him, the tone of the fight changed dramatically. So you have to tell me that the Korean zombie is going to maintain distance. Engage throwing heavy shots to keep him out and to back him up. And at no point is he going to make a defensive lapse that's going to get him hurt or put himself in a position where he's going to be on the defensive against Volkanovski. That's the cleanest and easiest fight for him to win. And you're telling me he's going to do that. And he's never fought a pitch perfect fight. If he doesn't finish early, the later the fight goes, the sloppier he gets, the lower his IQ gets, and the more defense goes out the window. So I assume that Volkanovski can handle his power and handle the shots early and fight his way through them. But I do not think the Korean zombie can fight at pace when you're when he's having to defend and counter not just strikes and knees and tie-ups, but takedowns, clinches, and top control. I don't think that he can cover all the bases at a high pace and maintain that pace and maintain defensive awareness throughout that. If he doesn't finish in the first round and a half, um, I expect Volkanovski to finish, but I expect Volkanovski to put, have to put it on him for the better part of, uh, you know, two rounds to get that finish because Korean Zombie is generally pretty tough and he's a good enough finisher that you can't just go all out and just sell, sell out because he might catch you with something and finish you. But I would expect Volkanovski to, to get the advantageous positions, position, have Korean Zombie fight out of it a couple times and eventually just get ground down by the physicality and the pace of Volkanovski. Like I said, early on, he's got a chance because Volkanovski is not hard to hit. But Volkanovski is hard to hit the way you want, and he's hard to scare off. And if you can't scare him off and he gets his hands on you, we have a whole other problem. And he stood up against Chad Mendez, Jose Aldo, big hitters in the division, haven't been able to dent his chin. And if I have to rely on one person's chin in recovery, I'm going to go with Volkanovski because we've seen the Korean zombie get hurt before, and we've seen him get hurt recently. And... Even though he's fighting smarter, you can't erase all the mileage he has on him from constantly being in wars for the better part of two to five years in the UFC fighting world-class opposition. Good stuff. As much as I want to see um, Korean Zombie pick up a win and live in a world where both Korean Zombie and Charles Oliveira are champions in the UFC, I don't see it happening as well here. I commend Volkanovski for taking this fight. 
Um, he could have waited for Max Holloway, but instead, you know, he stepped up and said he wanted to stay on a card. He wanted to fight, and he took a tough, tough contest in um, Chancellor Jung. But I think he picks up the victory here. Um, it's, a, it's a dangerous fight because it's a fight he should win, and he needs to look very good in because the Korean Zombie didn't look great against Dan Ige. He looked dominant, but he didn't look like he was a class above him. So struggling with him, much less losing to him, puts kind of a shadow over his reign and might give his future contenders some confidence. He's supposed the Korean Zombie's the kind of guy at this stage of his career, Volkanovski is supposed to dominate. So if he does anything less, there will be some questions about how good Volkanovski is, how big a hitter he is, and if maybe he's a little bit more limited than we think, and it's a matter of his physicality that's winning in fights instead of his IQ and all-around skills. Good stuff there, sir. Um, let's move on to the co-main event. And it's funny because I don't see a lot of people talking about the co-main event, and I think that's pretty weird. Al Jermaine Sterling is defending his Bantamweight Championship against the interim champion, Peter Yan. We are all familiar with what happened last year. Where Was it last year? 2020, actually, I think it was. Maybe. I'm, I can't even really remember at this point in time. Where Al Jermaine Sterling won the title via disqualification because Peter Yan need him while he was down. I think it was the second round or so, second or third round. Third round. No, he need him in the fourth, right? Yeah, I think it was the fourth. I think yeah, he might... need him in the fourth. Yeah. So Peter Yan has fought since then. He defeated Corey Sanhagen and Aljamain Sterling had, I believe, neck uh, surgery. He may have had soldier, shoulder surgery as well, too, during that time. But here we are. We're finally getting this five-round Bantamweight fight where Sterling is going to defend the title against Jan. What are some of your thoughts about this, um, Sean? And then we'll go into the other pieces of the story. I don't think a lot of people are talking about this fight because in the first fight, um, once Jan got control, it was pretty much a one-sided beating. I mean, Aljo came out pretty heated early, working early, putting the pace on him, keeping him on his defensive. But once the fight turned, he had no he had no ability to slow down the fight, no ability to get advantageous position. He couldn't hang in the striking exchanges. He was getting dominated in wrestling exchanges. It would just became um, a competitive one-sided beating because Aljo wouldn't relent, but he just couldn't do anything to turn the fight around. So a lot of people look at that and they're like, "What is what? What can Aljo do to make the fight differently?" Because the issues he had was a matter of his durability. He he can't he can pitch, but he can't catch like like other guys. And physicality, even as good a wrestler as he is, he wasn't able to bully Jan. Jan was bullying him. Jan was taking him down and punishing him. Jan was holding him down and punishing him. Um, Sterling was never at any point able to really get any momentum in tie-ups and takedowns or on the ground, which was where we felt he had the advantage. So to a lot of people, this is just going to be a repeat of the previous fight because Jan should have a, after all the stuff that Aljo's been talking, Peter Jan should have motivation to come in there and to punish him and to repeat what he did last time because most people just can't see Aljamain Sterling doing anything different or differently enough that's going to change the direction of the fight. Yeah, I am wondering if Aljamain comes out with a completely different 
strategy. Uh, we saw what he tried to do in the first fight where he tried to push the pace early. And in some ways, it may have been working. He was up on one card, uh, two rounds of one, and the other two judges had it, two rounds of one for Peter Yan before the knee. But he was definitely slowing down, and he was definitely um, – he, he was fatiguing. One second. And he was definitely fatiguing. So now we're in a situation where we have to see if his strategy looks different. And if so, how does it look different? Because um, he's going to need to do something different if he's expecting some type of different outcome against Peter well, Yang. That, that, that's the problem. Aljamain Sterling, he's improved as a striker. But a lot of that's because of his length, his speed, his mobility. I don't know that even now you consider him a particularly technical or high-level striker who can stand at range and really box or kickbox with the finest guys out there. Peter, you can say whatever you want about Jose Aldo not being who Jose Aldo used to be. Jose Aldo was still one of the finest technical strikers in mixed martial arts. And Peter Yan matched him move for move, strike for strike, and actually made technical and strategical adjustments on top of using his volume and physicality to break Aldo down. I can't imagine a world where Aljamain Sterling could stay on the feet with Jose Aldo for three rounds out of five and went around outside of just throwing volume and hoping to keep him on the defensive. And that's what he did the first fight. He knew we couldn't strike with him. He knew we couldn't stay at range. He knew we couldn't match techniques. So it's volume. I'm going to outwork him. I'm going to keep him defensive. And just by the amount of volume I throw, even if he lands a couple of big shots in return, I'm landing 10 or 11 for every three or four he lands. So if he doesn't stop me, I'm just going to win on hustle. I'm just going to keep him defensive, defending takedowns, defending submissions, defending strikes. But the thing about it is he set a pace that not only could he not maintain, but he didn't have the ability to ramp up the pace. If Aljamain Sterling could have went up another level as far as his pacing, he wins that fight easily because he was throwing so much at Jan and just keeping him second-guessing, changing levels, defending different kinds of shots. But the fact of the matter is he couldn't maintain the pace. And once he started slowing, it became a matter of skill and physical attributes. And Peter Yan's actually pretty explosive. He hits pretty hard. He's pretty quick. So now the attributes are close. So now it just comes down to skill. And Aljamain Sterling is not skilled enough to match to match Peter Yan. Strike for strike, move for move, counter for counter, lead for lead, first of all. And second of all, he's not durable enough. When he's been hit hard by guys, anybody, big hitters, small hitters, it's changed his temperament. He's never just got in there in exchange and extended exchanges with firefights. He's leaned on his ability to grapple, to set up his striking, to make it more effective. Peter Yan's not afraid of his wrestling. And Peter Yan's not afraid of what he has to do on the feet. So it becomes, once again, how does Aljamain Sterling win? Could he knock him out? He could land a shot. He's explosive. He's fast. But Peter Yan's a good defensive fighter. Peter Yan's willing to give away a round or two to figure, to figure out if you can maintain your pace or to figure out what your patterns are, and then start dismantling them. So I can see Aljamain even coming to an early lead again. But if he doesn't finish early, I have no idea how he wins the fight because he doesn't have the physicality to outright control and bully Peter Yan. He doesn't have the durability to just keep throwing bombs and standing there in exchanges. And he doesn't have the skills to stay in a slow match fight and jab and slip and check and dip and counter. He, he doesn't have that. And you're not going to pick that up in six months or eight months, especially coming off of surgery. So somebody would have to tell me what they've seen in previous fights that says he can go in there against Peter Yan and win. He's beat better guys, ranking-wise. But a lot of those guys, I believe Peter Yan could be too. 
I don't know that Aljamain Sterling would beat Jose Aldo. I don't know that for sure. But I think Peter Yan beats anybody else that Aljamain Sterling has fought. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting way to uh, put it. I'm really excited about this fight here because I think it's it's interesting because the bantamweight division is so deep. Like regardless of which man wins, you have to look and say, okay, well who's next? Do they go to TJ Dillashaw, um, Jose Aldo? Like where do they go? So if if coming out of this fight, regardless of who wins, Jan or Sterling, who do you think is next in line? I don't know. Probably if Dillashaw and Jose Aldo fight, which will probably happen, something like that. Dillashaw, Jose Aldo, Jose Aldo, and Dominic Cruz. Somebody out of those three would probably be next. Um, TJ Dillashaw or Jose Aldo would probably be the favorites as far as they have a storyline. They have some uh, somewhat of, of a history. Um, the way that uh, Dominic Cruz lost to Cejudo, and even in the wins he's fought, he hasn't looked a level above. So I think Jose Aldo or a uh, Jose Aldo or or TJ Dillashaw probably Dillashaw if it's a uh, Dillashaw if it's Peter Yan if it's um, Aljamain Sterling it'd probably be Jose Aldo I think but either way I think one of those two are still they're still winning fights they're still still proving that they're at least a level and a half above the rest of the division I think it'd be one of those two. Um, I, I do want to say, like, I like Aljamain Sterling. I, I don't blame him for embracing the championship. The guy flaunted the rules, and whether he was faking or not, if the guy didn't do the foul, there'd be no way he could fake his way into a title. I feel bad because his title reign his title reign has been kind of marred by the fact that it, it didn't matter that he got the, fight, the title through a foul. The fact is the fight was going – Peter Young was completely dominating it. So it's not like it was a 50-50 fight. And people can say, well, you know, it could have gone either way, yada, yada, yada. Peter Yan was just dominating him. Aljamain Sterling couldn't do anything. He couldn't get takedown. He couldn't get to his feet. He couldn't fire back. He was going to be, he's being completely dominated. So people don't even have the thought in their mind that the fight was close or competitive. And I feel bad for him because he's, he's a very good fighter. And this whole situation has kind of made people look at him differently. Even the people who are on his side about the foul will say, they don't know why Peter Yan did that. He was having his way with him. Like, why would you do that? You were like five minutes away from a title and it was, it was going to be easy work. You might've finished this guy legitimately had you just stuck to the rules. So it's, it's marred his reputation as a fighter. It's marred his time as a Bantamweight champion. And even if he beats Peter Yan, if it's a close fight, I can see them doing a trilogy just because Peter Yan essentially won the first fight lost on a foul. And if the fight's super competitive and a split decision, that means Aljamain Sterling has still not clearly won even one fight against Peter Yan. So he's got to come out there and he's got to make an he's got to make a statement and he really has to win this because if he loses if he loses the fight it's just a really bad look for him. It's just like it it's basically going to look like he took the title and tried to hide because he knew it was going to happen to him. A lot is riding on him for this title fight because if he loses it he's going to be back three or four fights before he sees the title fight again. He's not going to see one anytime soon. If Jan loses it and it's close, I think he might get a rematch. But if, if Aljamain Sterling loses this, he's not a popular champion. He's not a guy people like. Um, I think he might be two or three years away from potential return on that. And the division's only getting deeper and more competitive. So that two or three two or three years might turn to three to five. Or it might just mean he's never going to see that chance again. Yeah, I definitely agree that if he loses this, Sterling's going to get pushed way out of the title picture, regardless of what his accolades kind of look like. And I, and I stand up by the idea that Jose Aldo should be next in line 
for who comes out on top here. So let's move to what is probably the biggest fight on this card, and it's not even a title bout. Gilbert Burns has much made off three rounds, 170 pounds. This is a fight that has had me excited since it was announced, and especially looking at um, some of the interviews that Gilbert Burns has been doing, some of the trainings he, he's been doing. He's coming into this looking to halt Chimeoff's momentum. I think it is an excellent fight for both men because we have Chimeoff who can easily vault Leon Edwards in the title picture if he picks up a win here, a dominant win. They will pull um, Edwards out of whatever fight uh, negotiations they have for him right now and put uh, Chimeoff against Usman by the end of this year. I guarantee it. But then you have Gilbert Burns, who's in no way or shape uh, easy out for anyone. So I think this is a very interesting fight here, and it will tell us a lot about Chimeoff win, lose, or or uh, draw. And I, and I think that Burns shouldn't be overlooked in any way. Uh, I like Chimeoff. He's got a personality. He's got some athletic talent. But because of the way he's won, people have overrated his skill set. I'm not saying he's fought pushovers or soft touches, but we don't really know the depth of his skill because we've never seen somebody actually push back on him. People talk about his wrestling. There was a guy on uh, Twitter, I can't remember his name, he was interacting with me, and he's like, people keep talking about how he's this great wrestler being on the Swedish Olympic team, but those guys aren't considered elite wrestlers. And a lot of what Shemayev does in his grappling exchanges is just his aggression, his size, and his, his explosiveness. We've never seen him try to wrestle late in the third round or late in the fifth round. We've never even seen him he fight again. He hasn't been, man. He hasn't, he hasn't made it out of the first round. Exactly. We, we, it's like, um, you know, in grappling, it's like anything else. When somebody's fresh and they're comfortable, it's easy to bring the jab back. It's easy to shoot correctly. It's easy to go to the guard correctly. But what happens when you're tired, when somebody's not letting you get to your spots easily? That's when you find out the actual skill that you have. When you can just out-athlete and do a sloppy takedown and get up or just do a crazy scramble and get out, that's fine. But when you get tired, that crazy scramble, scramble gets you pinned or gets you finished. Then you have to rely on your actual awareness, situational awareness, and technical skill set to work one, two, three, four, five, escape. You can't just go one through five escape because you don't have that to lean on. He's never been in a, in a situation where he's been forced to have to fight back or he's been forced to fight through fatigue. We don't know how good his striking is because we've never seen it when it's tired. We've never seen him take a shot and have to stay disciplined and show poise and depth and awareness. We've never seen him have to get a takedown late in the third round to win a fight or have to defend a takedown late in the third round to defend a fight. We've never even seen somebody being able to really defend his takedowns. It's all been aggression, physicality, size, and athleticism. So we don't really know how good he is. We don't know if he can take a shot. I mean, everybody says in sparring, I get hit really hard. But if that was the case, why do guys spar with heavyweights and sparring and then get in a fight and get knocked out by a lightweight in a fight? Well, it's because of smaller gloves. Yeah, smaller gloves, whatever. I don't care if you're wearing 16 ounces. If you're getting 16 ounces, getting hit by a 200-pound guy and it ain't shaking you up, there's no reason the, the shot by a 155-pound guy is laying you out. I'm sorry. It's, that's not how that works. The fact of the matter is sparring is sparring, and people are not trying to win. Even when they're going hard, they're trying to work on something or make you work. So we don't really know his IQ. We don't really know the depth of his skill set. We, we don't know anything about him except he's offensively minded. He's very athletic. He's physically punishing, and he's, he's a guy who will finish you if the opportunity presents itself. 
We have no idea how he reacts under duress. We have no idea what happens when he has to fight for a position or he has to fight out of one or a guy can defend his strikes or whatever. So it's hard to buy in on him because I don't know what he looks like in an actual fight. I know what he looks like when it's one-way traffic. And everybody looks tough when they're putting a beating on someone, every single person. Gilbert Burns is a is probably one of the better athletes he's faced. Gilbert Burns is probably one of the harder hitters he's faced. He's probably the very best grappler he's ever faced. The problem with Gilbert Burns is we've seen Gilbert get tired. We've seen, seen Gilbert get rocked by power punches. And as good as Gilbert is on the feet, the fact is defensively, he, he leans on his offense as a line of defense. So he either exhausts himself or when a guy is not afraid of getting hit or can walk through some of his shots, he gets easily exploited. And Gilbert hasn't shown the best chin. He hasn't shown the best gas tank. He's a guy who likes to get a lead, establish one, take over the fight, and finish the fight. Facing a guy who's a comparable athlete, maybe a better one, who's that much bigger because Chimeyev could fight at middleweight. We don't know how Gilbert responds if somebody just jumps on him. Usually he's the guy who jumps on people. He's got that huge advantage, and he can dictate terms. We don't know how he is when when somebody jumps on him and a guy doesn't have fear of his grappling or doesn't have fear of his striking and just comes in looking to put something on him. That's, that's really the question. Gilbert Burns is going to have to face something that he's not normally used to facing in fights because people are so respectful of his grappling and so respectful of his athleticism. I think I'm interested in seeing what the grappling looks like in this fight, especially if you look back. He's faced some great um, grapplers across his career. I mean, that match with Damian Maya, he was not afraid of Maya's submission offensive um, output in any way, shape, or form. Even though Maya took his back, he was still able to fight his way out of that. I mean, this is an ADCC bronze medalist that we're talking about. Burns has effective wrestling as well, too, but it's, it's like effective wrestling for that space. Just like Chimeyev, he wouldn't be a quote-unquote Olympic quality uh, wrestler anywhere else or anywhere that you would kind of place him. So, um, and you're right, he he has had gas tank issues throughout his career, um, but he's how gone. Many, how, many times, how many times has Gilbert Burns beat a guy who's as good or a better athlete than him, though? I don't think he's had a lot of those wins. At least in MMA, let's look, um, who's a better athlete I, I mean, Tyron Woodley wasn't a better athlete at that time. So nope. Damian Maya, damn sure wasn't. Olivier Olivier Albin Albin Mercy, I can't say that guy's name. He was a great athlete back then. Um, Maybe I guess I give you that. But I mean, Mike Davis, nah, Jason Sago. Oh, was a good athlete. He's still around. Um, that's probably about it from a MMA standpoint. Most of the guys he's beaten and 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 handled them. He's he's been a better at this point. He's a much better athlete than Stephen Thompson, and he's much fresher. Tyron mm-hmm. Woodley, much better athlete at that point. Damian Maya, much better athlete at that point. Mike Davis, much better athlete at that point. Daniel Hooker, much better athlete at the point. Daniel Moret, Jason Sago, much better athlete than them. The guys he's dominated and had his way with, he's been much much better athletes than when he's faced guys who of comparable athletic athletic ability. You don't see the finishes. It's it's a decision. It's a decision. He might be one-sided, but he's not able to just completely overwhelm them and have his way with them. Against Chimeyev, he's facing a guy who is much bigger, much stronger, and as explosive or more explosive than him. Can Gilbert Burns handle when someone jumps on him immediately with speed and, and ferocity? And if he can, then the, then the question turns, does that weight cut, does that drain Chimeyev? Can he go all out for round one? 
and then recover and be ready for a round two? Or does he send out his gas tank and after he doesn't finish, it's a wrap for him? It's a 50-50 fight because we're going to see somebody attack Gilbert Burns with a relentlessness we haven't seen on the feet or on the ground. And secondly, we're going to see Chimeyev against a guy who has enough athleticism and enough skill to extend a fight past one or two minutes and make Chimeyev actually have to engage in a fight and not a one-sided assault. Because that's all he's been doing, one-sided assaults. Take you down, pound you out. Land the strikes, knock you out. He hasn't had to work for anything. We have no idea what he does when an opponent does not let him hit him, hits him back, and makes him work for positioning. He might completely fall apart. So to me, it's a 50-50 fight. And, um, I mean, if Chimeyev loses, it's a bad loss. I don't care about Gilbert's ranking and whatever. Gilbert got crushed by the champion after a few brief moments. A loss to Burns is a dramatic derailing of the high train. I wouldn't so there's a couple of things. So, okay. So I want to talk about the first part about Burns, uh, his ability to react after someone's jumped on him. You may say Damian Maia wasn't a good, as good athlete as Gilbert Burns was or is. He's not as good. He's but, not. But the fact he, that, if, but the fact that Damian Maia took his back in the first two minutes of the fight and Gilbert Burns was able to survive, who, who gets out of that position? Damian Maia on your back two minutes in the first round. No, it's a tremendous it's a tremendous example of skill. But if Chimeyev gets his back early in two rounds just by speed and athleticism, he's not looking for submission. He's just going to pound him out. Okay. And then the other half, what did you just say about um, – I, I totally forgot what you – oh, yeah. So would this be a major hit to Chimeyev's, um hype train? Mm, I mean – yeah, he's coming off. Well, he 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 just beat um, Stephen Thompson, but he had that loss to Kamaru Usman. But he did drop Usman in the first round. He had him in a yeah. very bad state in that in the first round of that fight. So I don't think that it's as big of a hype train derailment. I'm trying to think of a of a comparable uh, of a comparable kind of like comparison that we've seen maybe a lot. Well, no, we can't even say Josh Crispy and Dustin Poirier. Like you can't even really say that maybe along the lines of when Dustin Poirier lost to Chan Sung Jung, uh, he had to kind of rebuild himself up, but it wasn't a, it wasn't like a, this guy's, we should be, we should be looking at him in a different stance. I think if Chimeyoff loses this fight, it'll set him back, but his hype chain won't be as derailed as you said. I think a lot of his, a lot of the loss, because if a loss comes, it's because a he faced resistance and it and he broke and got finished, or b he got tired. Either one's not a good sign for someone who's saying he's elite because you're if you gas against Gilbert Burns and Gilbert Burns isn't totally out of shape, but he's 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 got extended before. He's had fights where he's dominant. He could have finished, but he he extended himself and he didn't have enough to close the show. If you gas then basically we know that the minute somebody gets through a minute or two of the rounds, you can't hang. And and if ultimately if Gilbert Burns just punches him in his face and he falls apart, that ain't great for him either. Because that's been the question everybody's been asking. What happens when he has to fight? We, we all want to know what happens when he has to fight. And the question is, can Gilbert Burns put him in a position where instead of attacking someone, he's having to fight back. And if he can't fight back, you can't be a champion as a person who can't fight back. No matter how great an athlete you are, how dynamic finisher you are, at some point someone's going to handle what you have and force you to fight back. And if he can't fight back at all, the whole whole training is derailed. 
the whole train is built on his dominance and his seemingly being two to three steps ahead of everybody in the division. The train is not built on him being close. If he was in close fights, he wouldn't be in the position he's in. He's in them because he's made it seem like the gap is this wide between me and everybody else. So him going to the nail with Gilbert Burns in a win, a win's still great. But it's it's not good for his narrative as, as far as getting that title fight. He has to crush people. That's how he gets the title fight. A close win ain't getting him a fight over Leon Edwards. It's not going to happen. It has to be a dominant win where people start thinking, hey, look what he did to Gilbert Burns. And Gilbert Burns had moments against Usman. Usman's in trouble. If he struggles with him, much less loses, he's going to have to put on another impressive performance before he gets that title fight. Good stuff there. So he's, I'll, he's a victim of his own success, basically. Yeah, that's right. I can definitely agree with you on that. Um, what else stands out on this card to you? Because I, man, I was not prepared for how deep this card is. We got Mackenzie Dern versus Tisha Torres. Um, Vic Shell against Marco Madsen. Uh, we have Rosenstruck versus Tybura. I think that's a good fight. That's deeper down on the card that, you know, we're not really paying attention to. Aspen Lab, Raquel Pennington. That's an important fight. We have um, Piata Rodriguez. She's making her debut against Kay Hansen, who is someone that the UFC had very high hopes on. So there's a lot to kind of look at on this card. What else is standing out to you? I would say the uh, Rosenstruck Tybura fight, being that Ngannou's hurt, Gagne's coming off a loss, and Tuavasa had a big win, and who else had a big win recently? Uh, Blades. They're probably going to have to do some kind of round-robin tournament to establish who's the next heavyweight champion because Ngannou's probably going to be out from six to eight months. So this fight is going to be very important as far as jockeying for position to be in that fantastic four of fighters who are probably going to be fighting for the uh, interim title until Ngannou decides to drop his and leave the UFC or recover and come back. That's that's super important. Outside of that, um, Mackenzie Dern versus Tisha Torres, only because we haven't... Mackenzie Dern, as good as she's been in spots in the UFC, has never really been consistently good against a certain level of competition. So this is yet another chapter where we're hoping to see Mackenzie Dern evolve as a fighter, as an all-around MMA fighter, and get to the point where she can consistently put wins together against competent, athletic, experienced competition. When she gets to a certain level, she tend, she's tended to struggle. And now is at the point where we need to see her go past the line she's been at. We already know she can strike. We know she can bang. We know she can submit. We need to see her see, see some of that wrestling and see some fluidity between how she fights so we can really take her seriously as a contender. She's got world championship contender physical ability and grappling skills, but she hasn't shown world-level IQ or versatility in how she attacks, counters, and defends um, against solid opposition. So this is another chance for her to reassert herself and show us that she's not the underachiever that a lot of us think she is because she's got elite talent. She just hasn't gotten elite results from it. And so far she's been an underachievement, somewhat of a disappointment as far as a big signing and giving as given given as gifted as she is, she probably should be contending for a title right now instead of having to contend for a top 10 spot against a person who has also numerously, repeatedly underperformed against the best in the division. Yeah, I can definitely agree with you there. Um, I'm interested in seeing what the Mackenzie Dern, Tisha Torres fight looks like as well, too. Um, it's weird because I feel like that division is wide open, but at the same time, it's not. Uh, you have 
Namajunas at the top, and then you have who else after that? You have a Carlos Barza fight coming up, and it doesn't really seem to be much movement beyond that. Uh, so I'm interested in seeing what this fight looks like and uh, and how both of these women perform well, towards they, they Friday. Want, they, want, they want Duren in those spots. They've tried to help Duren get into those spots. She just hasn't been able to pull the trigger. It's like the, the reverse Angela Hill thing. Angela Hill isn't their first choice, but Angela, Angela Hill has shown so much personality and versatility she keeps herself in these talks, but she's never able to put enough, enough wins together to justify it. They want Mackenzie Dern in these positions, but she's never, ever, ever able to get a big enough win to force herself into contending for a title. So even though the UFC is on her side, she she keeps underperforming. And then like she ran into Amanda Hebas, she won four straight, and then stopping three of the women, and then she runs into Marina Rodriguez. So, and she's someone, I think, I think Marina Rodriguez might be next in line um, for a, a title shot, but I won't be surprised if they make her fight one more time either. She's on a four-fight win streak. So If Mackenzie um, Dern would have won that fight, Mackenzie Dern would be fighting for the title. It's only because it wasn't Mackenzie Dern. They want her to fight for it. She just isn't doing the job. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And, and I'm interested in what that fight would look like if she, her and, and Rose Far. Obviously, Rose is going to be the better striker um, through and through. I mean, that's 110%. But if and when McKenzie gets you on the ground, you it goes to DEFCON number one immediately just because she can finish and she can finish from so many different places that you don't see in women's MMA often. So I think she's a she's a dangerous fighter, but she just has you can't get there yet. Yeah, I, I really want to be interested to see if, you know, given Rose isn't, isn't as accomplished as McKenzie Dern, but in, in mixed martial arts, Rose is considered somewhat of a boogeyman on the ground herself. So it'd be inter- interesting to see if she would actually engage in those exchanges and how mm-hmm. they would go it, within the context of striking, wrestling, everything else. It'd be interesting because, you know, Rose is considered an uh, all-time great talent. And it'd be interesting to see if she would really challenge herself. She's challenged Joanna Jodjedrick, I can't say her name, on the feet. And she was a much better, more established striker. Would she be willing to test herself on the ground against the much more established and, in theory, superior grappler. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, well, it's not in theory, because there was a time when Mackenzie Dern was ranked the top women's grappler in the world for years. So that's not a theory. That's a fact. I mean, based on what her accolades alone is in that space. Um, Joanna was never considered the greatest uh, Muay Thai fighter in women's Muay Thai at any point in time. Mackenzie Dern can definitely say she was the world's greatest um, grappler at one point in time. I mean, she beat Gabby. Uh, she beat Gabby Garcia when she was a boogeyman of grappling. Period. So um, it'll be it will be interesting if we get there because she can run into Tisha Torres and not take her down because Tisha's just so damn strong. So let's see what that fight looks like on Saturday. I'm really interested in that contest as well too. So Sean, we got a lot of boxing to talk about, man. There's a lot going on Saturday where. Um, I want to start with Ryan Garcia first. He is fighting Emmanuel Tagoe. Did I say that right? I thought it was Tagbo. Huh? I thought it was Tago, but maybe, maybe yeah, I'm not. Exactly I'm not. Right. I, have not, I have not said his name. So Ryan Garcia is an interesting spot because he's he's this is his first fight under a new camp. Um, we've all seen the story about uh, him having a falling out with Canelo Alvarez's um, training uh, head head coach with Alvarez basically saying that Garcia doesn't look like his heart is in it for lack of a better term. Um, what should we expect from Garcia this in this fight and beyond? 
Well, he's he's training with Joe Goosen, who's one of the best trainers as far as repping the fundamentals, getting his fighter to buy into his method of training and developing good habits, encounters, and leads to maximize his fighter's physical skills, whether it's durability, strength, power, athleticism. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Garcia is expected to win this fight. It's supposed to be somewhat of a showcase fight against a tough, kind of awkward, experienced guy who won't fold and will be willing to fire back. Ryan's a better athlete. Ryan's probably one of the better athletes in the division. He's probably, if not one of the bigger hitter, hitters, the biggest hitter, and he's got the fastest hands in the division. This is fight is merely to, to get him active, reintroduce him to the public, and hopefully build up some steam and some interest in him getting a bigger name, like a winner of Haney Cambosis or maybe Gervonta Davis versus Roly Romero. It's just trying to get him back in the mix because Ryan Garcia is a guy who's got looks. He's got athleticism. He's got knockout power. He's been improving, but excuse me, he's never fought consistently enough to, to build off any of the success he's had. He had two or three, four fights in a row against ascending opposition he beat Luke Campbell, and after that, he just fell off the map. They were talking about fights with Javonta Davis. They were talking about possible fights with Devin Haney. He was supposed to be uh, up to challenge for Devin Haney's title, and all those things never came to fruition. So basically, Canelo's trainer, people are going to fall on this on his side because Ryan, Ryan Garcia, there's always been questions about his commitment to the sport and his recent pulling out of fights, getting hurt before fights, constantly – not having fight, not fighting for a year or more, but constantly saying who he'd knock out and who's ducking who and who doesn't have the courage or the skill while not actively competing has taken away all the goodwill of his win over Luke Campbell. After that win, people were considering him a top contender, a future champion, and a face of the sport. And since then, he has done absolutely nothing with that momentum. So now he's trying to reestablish himself, get some attention, and hopefully get a spectacular win that'll help him get sharp and be prepared to take the next step, hopefully against a name fighter. Yeah, I'm really interested in seeing what Ryan Garcia looks like because he's only, what, 26, I think? So yeah, he, he, could has... be, he could be a star. He's a good-looking kid. Girls mm-hmm. like him. He's got that De La Hoy effect. He's one of the yeah, people who can definitely be a huge star. He's more. still very young. But so, he, uh, he, hasn't, he doesn't fight enough. He's been inactive for the better part of almost two years. And while he's been sitting on sidelines, other people have moved up in weight, moved down. Devin Haney's defended his title like once or twice. And now he's fighting for the undisputed. Teofimo lost his title. A lot of things have happened to change the landscape. And Ryan Garcia's got to get back in there to prove that not only is he worthy to be mentioned, that he's actually a legitimate threat and not a sideshow who gets more, who gets by more because of his social media impact than his impact in the ring. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of, of Ryan Garcia and if he's a star that everyone's kind of pointing him out to be. Um, there's some other big fights this weekend as well. Triple G's back. He's fighting Ryoto, Ryota <clears throat> Murata as well. So what are your thoughts about this fight here? And, you know, Triple G's still in the, in the Canelo Alvarez race as well, too. So how does he need to look on Saturday if he's going to be the next guy to fight Alvarez or fight him in, later on this year? First, he has to win, and he has to win dynamically. If he ekes by, it is, if he ekes by, it's got to be some. It really, he's got to win. He's got to win dynamically, preferably by stoppage. Even if it's a fight of the year type fight, if he doesn't have a spectacular finish, it's going to take some of the shine off the fight because the theory is, one, Canelo Alvarez waited until 
Gennetti had lost maybe a half a step, quarter of a step, whatever. And in between that and the rematch, Golovkin hasn't looked dynamic. Golovkin hasn't looked dominant against world-class opposition, and he hasn't been super active while Canelo has been facing increasingly larger opposition and increasingly fresher opposition, increasingly um, undefeated opposition, where Golovkin has not been nearly as active against or facing the quality of opposition. So the idea of the fight is less attractive now because it seems like Canelo's ascending and at best Golovkin's holding position. And even, even the last time they fought, Canelo clearly won. Canelo clearly beat him. So the idea is the second fight with an older, slower, more shop-worn Golovkin isn't going to be as competitive. It's basically a money grab for both parties. Um, so Golovkin needs to win dynamically. He needs a dynamic. If he wins by decision, he's got to lay a beating on this guy. Most likely he needs to win by stoppage. Uh, his opponent is big. He's strong. He's aggressive. He, if he jumps on Golovkin early, because Golovkin's been somewhat of a slow starter, if he can jump on him early... We might have something because Golovkin's chin isn't what it used to be. It's still great, but you can back him up. He's not as quick as he used to be, so you can get to him. And if you throw a lot of volume, maybe you can hurt him. Maybe you can put him in a position where he's behind the eight ball and he loses a close decision, or you can just overwhelm him and get him out of there early. You never know as the fighter gets older. You never know when their legs are gone. You never know when their chin is gone. They can look great one night, and then the next fight be completely done. Um, but most likely what's going to happen is Golovkin's going to establish his jab. They'll have a few heavy exchanges. Golovkin's going to start working to the body, and Golovkin's going to set up some kind of stoppage, whether it's the guy can't defend himself and he's covering up and he's just backing up, he's taking a beating, or Golovkin slams a clean counter shot to put him away. In theory, on paper, that's what should happen. Um, Golovkin's jab is an all-time great one. And the pound-for-pound pound best fighter, according to most people, is Canelo. And Canelo, in two fights, still hasn't solved that jab. And there's not a good chance that his that Golovkin's opponent is going to be able to do so either. But he is young. He is athletic. He does have some size and some, and some pop. His best bet is to go for broke early and see if Golovkin still has that killer, killer edge and still has enough youth and durability in him to withstand an opening salvo. If he does... Golovkin's going to outclass him and probably stop him. If he doesn't, not only do we have a real fight on our hands, but we we might have an upset. Either way, Golovkin needs an impressive showing to make this fight look good, and he needs to come out of this fight unscathed. Because if he gets hurt or he looks kind of shaky, Canelo has options now. Canelo's the cash cow. Canelo's facing guys in bigger weight classes. Nobody's going to question Canelo for not coming back to the Golovkin fight. In fact, they'll cheer him on for it. So this is very important that Golovkin not just win, but he does, does so in a certain fashion. Otherwise, he's the Canelo fight that's going to go away. He'll have he'll have to fight at least one other fight to get to Canelo. And at this point in his career, any fight could be your last one. So he needs to he needs to win this, and he needs to look good in doing so. Yeah, I can agree with you there too. As much as I would want to see an Alvarez fight down the line, I, I mean, I don't think he wins it in any way, shape, or form. If Murata wins. Do you think he could bump his way up into the Alvarez race? Maybe. I mean, the reason Golovkin's fighting Murata is because he's getting paid an exorbitant amount of money to fight him overseas. That's where the value of this comes, because Golovkin could have picked another fight when this fight got postponed, but he didn't because of how much money is at stake. What a huge payday on the front and the back end this is going to be for him. So he's not throwing away free money. Golovkin's at the point now where He'll fight tough matches, but he wants to be paid maximum 
high dollar to fight these guys. He's not taking fights just to take fights because it's interesting to people. He's taking fights to get paid because he knows his career is on the back nine. Now he's a good enough boxer, disciplined enough fighter that he can still fight at a world-class level, but he's no longer the boogeyman. People used to run from Golovkin. Now people are running to him. So like I said, if Murado, if Murado wins this fight, I don't know that Canelo fights him. Maybe. I don't know. Canelo wouldn't fight him next. Canelo wouldn't fight him next. Golovkin would probably has a rematch clause and would probably fight him again in hopes of getting building interest for the Canelo fight. So Golovkin loses his fight. It's just going to be a rematch because it'll be another big, big payday for Golovkin and, another, and a chance to regain his title and hopefully close out his career with a big fight. If he, if he loses, it establishes his opponent as a national hero in his country and gets him another huge payday in his country against a guy who's an all-time great future Hall of Famer and the number one middleweight in the world in, in boxing. Good stuff, Schwann. What, what other fights are you looking forward to this weekend? Um, I, I want, is the Spence fight this weekend? No, that was not this weekend. Okay, I thought I thought it was I thought it was this weekend. I hope it's not this weekend. Let me double check on that. I don't think it is. Um, I have Lubin versus Fandora, Esparza versus Fujioka, Maya versus Han as well. Those are the ones that jumped out to me. Okay, I'm just making sure. Yeah, okay. Well, if it's not the the Fandora versus Lubin fight is going to be a big fight because that's going to probably determine the next challenger in that weight class. Um, Lubin is a great technician, great athlete, great amateur background. The issue with Lubin has been he's never been particularly sturdy. In wins or losses, you always feel like he's one punch away from getting finished uh, against Sebastian Fandora. Fandora's got Good boxing skill, not the greatest IQ, not the greatest versatility, but he's big, he's long, he's lanky, he's a busy fighter, he's a durable fighter. He's the kind of guy that you can outbox and you can beat, but you're going to have to beat him. He's not going to concede to you. He's not going to give in to you. You've got to break him down. You've got to put him away. You've got to make him quit. He's not going to quit. He's not going to slow. He's not going to get scared just because you have some power or some boxing skills. He's determined to go as long as he needs to go, as hard as he needs to go for a chance to win. Even if he knows he's, there's not no guarantee he's going to keep fighting. The question becomes, will Lubin maintain his poise and his discipline and stick to a efficient, medium paced fight where he can use his, flaunt his athleticism, flaunt his hand speed, flaunt his mobility and his superior boxing skills and range of skills? Or is he going to get tired, or collapse under the pressure that Fundora puts on him because he's not going to be able to scare Fundora off and he's not going to be able to back Fundora down. Will he start making mental mistakes? Will he get tired? Will, will he showboat and give Fundora an opportunity to take over the fight based purely off of his grit, his physicality, and the pace he fights at? It, it's a real simple fight. If it's a technical boxing match, there really shouldn't be a way that Fundora can match him in experience, athleticism, technique, mobility, punch placement, or shot selection. But if it comes down to a fight, who wants it more? Who can last through heavy exchanges? Who can fight at a pace and maintain it or raise it? Um, that's Fundora's expertise. So it's going to be a matter of can Fundora make the, put enough pace 
and take enough punishment to make the fight the kind of fight he needs to win? Or is Lubin going to be slick enough, smart enough, and disciplined enough to deny Fundor those opportunities completely and just pitch a shutout? Um, it's a 50-50 fight, and whoever wins it is going to be the next in line to challenge for a title. Good stuff there, Schwan. Um, yeah, I'm not too familiar with a lot of these fights going on, but I am going to be keeping a close eye on Ryan Garcia and Triple G and see how they perform on The good Saturday. thing is they're all, they're all important fights. Golovkin's important fight. Regardless of who wins, it's an important fight. He'll set up another important fight. If Ryan Garcia, even though he's not facing a name guy, he's a potential star in the sport. So whatever he does merits some sort of attention and focus. And the Fundora-Lubin fight, neither one of these guys are stars. What they are is established, skillful, experienced, and accomplished fighters. So this is just a purely good matchup. There's no need to sell it on name or potential stardom or name. It's the quality of the work they've done over the extent of their pro career, which is what makes this fight most appealing. Not about who they're going to face next, not about the payday, not about the name. It's all about the quality of the fighter and the youth of the fighter and the stage they are in their career. So the, in, the, in, in regards to competitive action and youth and what could change the division the most, Fundor versus Lubin is the fight to watch. Good stuff there, sir. Um, so this is going to bring us up to our last topic today uh, as we close out the show. But this is my last appearance on the MMA Ratings Podcast. Um, I have decided to step away from MMA ratings and podcasting in general for uh, the duration. I'm not sure, quite sure how long, um, but my time is coming to an end. I've been with MMA, MMA ratings for 12 years now. Um, when the website started up in 2010, I was working with Eric Commander, who was the original creator of, of the show, and he ended up giving it up over to Michael who runs it now, and I've been a part of the show that entire time. We've been doing a podcast probably about six years now, I yeah. think, um, and maybe even a little bit more than that because uh, myself and Rory started the show a while back before Schwann jumped on with Schwann, and I've been doing it for probably about six years now, and it's been a ride, man. We've done a lot of good work. We've talked to a lot of good people here. I was thinking today about all the interviews that we've done, and we've had some um, pretty good names on the show as well, too. But my time is coming to an end. Uh, MMA has not enticed me as much as it has in the past. In fact, it's almost becoming unbearable for me in some ways. Um, it's, the, the action in the cage is good, but it's not like it, it, it used to be. It's, it, it is a watered-down product for revenue reasons, which I understand. Um, and fighter behavior just isn't, isn't, a, isn't a place, not even just fighter behavior, but um, MMA, MMA has a strong allegiance with grift and it's just not a space that i'm just uh not necessarily interested in being in uh anymore it's, it's been a challenge for me to find mma enjoying enjoyable over the last year or so uh so i will still be covering mma as an on an assigned basis for fan sided just because uh it's quick and quick and dirty work and also for fight metric as well too but um you know i only watch the fights when i'm there so outside of that, yeah, my time with MMA Rings is coming to a close. Schwann's been the best co-host I've, I've ever had. Um, we've done some great work together over the years. But as they said on the old Mickey Mouse uh, Playhouse show years ago, it's time for me to say goodbye, folks. I have to say I, I do. And, and a lot of people who listen to MMA podcasts or like MMA as a sport, 
if you go on Twitter a lot, and I know Twitter's not representative of the world, but if you go on Twitter, there's a lot of people who used to talk MMA all the time, like every fight. And a lot of people are like, I'm kind of burnt out. It's too many shows. It's too many meaningless fights. It's not the fight. The selling point at Mixed Martial Arts was you're always going to get the fights you want. The big names, not just big names, but big quality names and big quality fights. And, you know, Tyron Woodley versus Colby Covington. Big names, that's not a good fight. Jorge Masvidal versus Colby Covington. A lot of hoopla, but that's not really an elite kind of fight. And that's not even counting the multiple fight night cards where they're just trying to meet contractual obligations. It's been great for the sport as far as making money and making the UFC better. Hasn't been great for the fighters because they're still not making a ton of money. And it hasn't been great for the fans because we're not always getting the high level of fight. You have to risk your eat your weekend and hopefully get a spectacular show, which happens every four, five, six cards. But usually you get a below average card with below average fighters, people getting injured and pulling fights. It's hard to get excited every single weekend when you don't recognize half the people on the card. And to a certain degree, half the people shouldn't be even fighting at the UFC level, if we're being honest. So it's very very hard to get motivated and very hard to do the research for people who, and you respect what they do, but you don't really care about it. And their performances don't do anything to make you care about it. There's like 85% of the fighters in the UFC probably will never get to a world-class level. It's like, we just hang on for the fights for those that 15%. And we already know who they are because that's the ones who make us perk up. And I got to watch the show. 273, Volkanovski makes you want to watch. Peter Yan makes you want to watch. Some of these other fight night cards, you're like the number 14th heavyweight against an unranked heavyweight. Like, why are you even putting this on TV? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I, I understand your point. And I, I like combat sports myself, but recently boxing has been giving us the quality performances and quality fights and MMA has been just hit or miss. And it, even when it's a hit, it's a whole lot of misses and bad ones at that. Um, the one thing I do want to say is the biggest thing that I, I've got from us, you know, we had Marcus Davis on the show. We had a uh, misfit from fit NHB, the best, the best uh, Arlene Sanchez, the best and only to one I know, as far as American and mixed martial arts, corner man, female corner man in the business. We had Steven Wright, um, help coach Johnny, 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 uh, I can't even think Johnny Hendricks to a title. We've had some mm-hmm. big names on. We had Steve Kim. I know he's kind of controversial, one of the biggest names in boxing, podcasting, or writing. And uh, one of the biggest things I'm proud of is, while everybody always gets on the the bandwagon late, we've called some of the biggest upsets. Joanna versus Rose, we called that one. Um, Alvarez versus Dosanos, we called that one. Stipe over Verdum, we called that one. Um, Ronda Rousey versus Holly Holm, we called that one. Misha Taylor Holly Holm over Rousey. Yeah, we, we called that one. Um, Misha Tate over home. We called that one. And recently, you know, if we're going to end, if we're, we're going to end and close it out the show, you know, a month ago, month and a half ago, we called the biggest upset in mixed martial arts history. And we called it weeks and months and months before. And, um, you know, everybody can say after the fact, we saw it. And we, I had these thoughts and I had these feelings. All the big podcasts, I'm fans of y'all, Fight, fight Sight, Heavy Hands, Luke Thomas. I'm I'm big fans of all y'all. You do high quality work, but none of y'all was willing to put your name on it the night of, and none of y'all was willing to put your name on it months before. And we on this show for months said, Pena gets her, it's a wrap. We said it, we said it with our chest, and we said it repeatedly, and we caught all I caught jokes on Twitter, had other podcasts, man. Are you sure you know? That's kind of a risky take. Stood our ground. The week after that fight, no one could say anything. Everybody's, oh, you know, 
I saw it coming and this is the reason. Basically parroting my articles and parroting everything we said. But everybody, everybody saw it, but nobody was willing to speak on it. And we've always been willing to speak on tough topics and tough matchups. And I, I, I want to thank you for addressing uh, the more delicate issues in mixed martial arts. Everybody covers fights and trash talk. Very few people talk about the domestic issues, the political issues, and the social issues that come as a result of fighters speaking recklessly, promoters speaking recklessly, and things of that nature. You've always been willing to engage the difficult topics. And that's something that you don't get a lot of in mixed martial arts because everybody's connected to somebody. Everybody needs access. So they can't have those conversations. And we've always been free to have them. And you've always been someone who's initiated them. So I have an immense amount of respect for you and how you handled your business. The fact that unlike a lot of guys, me included, I don't compete in martial arts. You competed as a fighter. You competed as a grappler. You coach people. I've coached people, but I haven't done what you've done. And I didn't stay. I haven't stayed. I've trained, but it's it's totally different commitment. That's something else that separates you. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you let a a non-fighter speak his mind, however direct it may be about somebody. And you respect my opinion, and you've allowed me room to you know perform how I would perform, say what I want to say, and, and make the points I want to make without having to you know kind of second guess myself. You know, you gave me the confidence to speak freely because you never put me in a position where I've had to, well, Shawan, you don't want to say that. So I appreciate you letting me operate, letting me develop an online personality and letting me have some of the experiences that have come as a result of being on the show. And um, I know I'm not always on time or always easy to deal with, but uh, you know what? It's been a pleasure. And I consider you like one of my really good friends. I, I've talked to you at least once a week minimum for the past six years. And, and there's people I've known for 20 years who I don't talk to once a week in the past year. So um, you're you're definitely a good friend. Everybody in my family knows about you. They thank you for the opportunity to let me be a part of your show. And it's it's been great, man. It's It's been great. And uh, one of these days, we're going to have to get together and hang out. One of these days, I'm going to have to make a trip and get out there. And we're going to have to hang out. I'm actually coming there uh, this year, and I will be sure to let you know. I'm going to go see a friend of mine. But no, man, it's been great. Um, and I really appreciate it this time. Thank you for the kind words as well. It, 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 one of the things I've always kind of focused on is that this is a space where, I mean, this is this is the only podcast I know of that has been two black men other than the Corner podcast that has been on for as long as we've been on. I can't think of any others that have had just two black men talking about combat sports as long other than Andreas and um, Kale. So I think that that's something that we should definitely hang our hats on and um, just continue moving forward. I appreciate having you on the show and I appreciate the voice that you've always brought and expertise you've always brought to the space as well too. The show wouldn't have been been around still if you didn't come around. So um, again, thank you as well. And I appreciate all the support we've gotten all the years, but um, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen next for the MMA Ratings podcast. I'm not sure what Michael has in, in mind, but it's time for me to step away. Hey, it's better leave on a high note. That's better true, leave on a high note. Because I'd rather that than I'd rather that the mail. You see when guys have had enough and they start mailing it, and you're like, dude, come on. Yep, just, yep, definitely, definitely. Just stop so, um, doing it. We we know you don't want to be here. We, we're supporting you because we just support, but you're making it hard to support. Leave right. on a high note. We, we're we're just gonna pretend we left after Juliana Pena as the undefeated upset picking podcast of all time. Good stuff, sir. Well, thank you again, man, and I appreciate it all. And, um, yeah, signing off for the last time. Everyone stay safe and have a great weekend. Thanks a lot for everybody. Take it easy, man. Love you, man. Love you too, bro.